my pleasure to uh, come and share this morning and I was really moved by what Dave was saying. Um, there are times when words just can't express what it is you know and you feel. Um, and uh, I suppose it's been a big weekend for many of you uh, with, with the knowledge that Andy Bray has gone to be with the Lord. Um, and uh, as I was doing my final touches to my my presentation, um, it was hard not to, to think about the life that he lived, the man that he was. But anyway, First Peter, chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. I've called it, oops, there we go. I've called it full immersion um, in your booklet that you might have. Does that mean it's causing? Right. Like that? What did my beard? Is it my beard? <laughs> I don't want to break it. There we go. Okay. Um, so I've called it full immersion. In your booklet, it says a distinctive lifestyle. And I, I really just was trying to build on that idea. I think it's also fitting on a very wet day, like today. Um, but uh, I hadn't, hadn't expected the rain, to be honest, when I came up with the title. And I'm not talking about baptism either. I'm talking about holiness, being fully immersed in a life that is holy. Of course, there's a lot of misconceptions around the word holy or holiness, and so I wanted to deal with that this morning, because this passage is a perfect example, a perfect uh, address on this topic. this photo have to do any, with anything? Um, <clears throat> well, my brother is in that photo. You can't tell which one, of course. He's actually the one at the front. He's the first in the line. He's a firefighter. And he lives down in the central North Island in Tūrangi. Uh, he has recently taken on a, a full-time job with the fire service in which he's responsible for um, a whole lot of different volunteer brigades that are spread out uh, from, from Tūrangi all the way through to Murapara, if you know where that is, uh, another small town, all the way up to Takaroa, um, and all around the sort of the Taupo uh, district. And it's a big job, involves a lot of travel. My brother, just, just to uh, explain, is a firefighter from way back. He's not even that old, he's only 28, but he has been involved in the fire service since he was about 19. And it all started when he rescued a truck driver, before he actually joined the, the fire service, he rescued a truck driver from a truck that had gone off a road, down a gorge, and was, was just metres from plummeting into a very deep river. The truck driver was trapped in the cab, and the trailer had jackknifed and come over the top of the cab, and he had broken ribs, he couldn't get out. My brother, he got to the scene, he leapt into action, he climbed down through the wreckage, smashed out the back window with a tire iron, 
while the whole thing was creaking and you know groaning and ready to slide into the river with him and the truck driver. And he managed to smash that window out, took a fair bit of fair bit of doing, and he then reached in and he was able to pull the truck driver out, who wasn't a, a small guy, and he got him up to the road in the dark. It was midnight, pitch black. My brother didn't even have any shoes on and there was broken glass and all sorts of things everywhere. And he didn't think about any of that because he's the kind of guy that leaps into action. My brother is about the full experience. He would be a full immersion kind of guy. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't do things by halves. In fact, he's so engaged in what he does that he often burns himself out you know, and gives himself a headache or a migraine. That's how focused and intent he is on achieving what he's set out to do. As you can see, though, he's also into uh, you know, a bit of, bit of joking around. And he's so committed to the fire service that this is an example of what they do. They go out and they do fundraisers. Uh, I think this involved cycling a certain distance in their full gear and um, with a breathing apparatus on and everything else. My brother won the New Zealand Bravery Medal. He was awarded the New Zealand Bravery Medal for what he did when he was 19, actually 18. And ever since, he's understood what his calling in life is, and that is to serve as a firefighter. <coughs> so I've been sick, so if I, <coughs> if I start coughing or start spluttering, please forgive me. This is the passage that we're looking at, so I better not muck around. Verse 13, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. It's not a very big passage and you might, Matt might think you, you, know, you can go home early um, because of it. I don't know about that. We'll see. But let's start in verse 13. And, and, and we get a sense here that there's actually a lot of meaning packed in to a short space in just a few verses. Let's start with the word therefore. Because as we can probably appreciate, this is a word that connects something with its logical result. Well, what is the something that it's referring to? And how is, it this, how, how is this passage we're looking at the logical result? Well, if you were here last week or you listened online last week, uh, you would have heard Brad talking about the, the hope, the joy, the grace that we not only have to look forward to, but that we are currently partaking in through Christ. And if you were here the week before that or heard online the week before that, you would have understood and heard this message about what it's like to be on the margins, to be a people who are not welcome in the world. But we live in it regardless. And we have a mission, we have a purpose in this world while we are here. So if you want to go back and have a look at the first 12 verses, please do so. If you weren't here for the last couple of weeks, it may take a bit of unpacking, as you would have found if you were here. There's some very complicated sentences and ideas Many, many different clauses and subclauses as Brad went through. But let's work on this, this understanding. 
that when we know that we have this glorious future ahead of us, there is nothing, there is nothing at all that we can experience in this life that will ever overthrow us, that will ever make us give up, as long as we hold on to that knowledge of what is ahead. We may be living on the margins, facing ridicule, persecuted for our new nature, but we have a glorious future through what Christ has achieved with his hope, joy and grace to sustain us in the meantime. But it's not just a matter of waiting, being content with what's to come and what we have inside of us right now. Because what we have inside of us right now, Christ, his spirit, compels us to act. You may not be going a great distance to serve Christ, to work on his behalf. You may be just serving where you are, right here, in this part of Auckland. But there is no way you can just sit and enjoy this knowledge without doing something in response. We are compelled to act because we understand how great his love is for us. And if we don't understand that, we better go back and read the first 12 verses. So therefore, with minds that are alert, that's what it says in the NIV, with minds that are alert. With all due respect, I mean, the NIV is great, but I feel like it doesn't quite do justice to the original language here. In the Greek, and we'll go skip down a bit here, it's in the King James Version, it's gird up the loins of your mind. That is the most unusual phrase um, you're going to read today. To gird up the loins of your mind. Now, the NASB, the New American Standard Version, they, they sort of say something like prepare your minds for action. Again, not a bad translation, but it isn't as literal as the King James Version. But what does to gird mean? We know what loins are about, and that's kind of an unusual pairing with the idea of the mind. But how do you gird up the loins of your mind? The, uh, the phrase, or the, the word I should say, in the New Testament Greek, <coughs> and I'll try and say it right, is anazanumi. Anazanumi, to gird. To gird, if you have no idea what that word means, is to basically use a belt to tie together, to sort of bring it all together around your waist. Talking about a robe here, in those days, not only the, the, uh, the Jews, but the Greeks and Romans, they often wore long flowing robes. They could be sort of just down here, or it could be down to your knees, or it could be down even to your ankles, probably depending on the weather and the occasion. But they didn't wear trousers, and so when you have a robe, and often the robe was past the knees, down to the ankles, there are going to be moments in your day where it's slightly inconvenient if you've got to move around, if you've got to work, or if you've got to move quickly. So this idea that Peter's using is an interesting one because he was a guy that was active. Uh, my brother, I don't know if I said his name, Peter, but he's the same. He's constantly on the move. And Peter in the Bible was a guy who was a fisherman, 
constantly active. Everything you read about him in the New Testament suggests that there was never an idle moment when you were around Peter. So he understood what, what it was to, to gird up the robes, tie them together, and get them out of the way so you wouldn't trip over as you were working, as you were moving about. He was a fisherman, and so he needed his balance out on the boat. And it wouldn't have, wouldn't have helped to have worn a long flowing robe, or at least to have allowed it to hang down to your ankles. So being ready, being prepared, meant hitching it up. I don't want to say hitching up your skirt, because that, that could also go wrong, um, using that sort of uh, expression or translation, but that's, the kind, that's really the idea we're talking about here. The robes are pulled up out of the way and tied together with a belt, so that you are ready to move to act. And there's, a, there's an image, that's the best image I could actually find um, on, on Google. I looked for it for quite a while. Um, it doesn't really kind of give you the sense of the Greek style of dress, but it was somewhat similar. Long flowing robes, both for men and women. But you can understand how that would be difficult, impractical to work in, especially if you've got to bend down and if you're tilling the soil or you know, moving about quickly. Philip Greenslade, the, uh, the New Testament commentator, said, or as we might now say, this could be translated as, roll up the sleeves of your mental processes and get ready for some active thinking. That's his take on this use of the phrase to gird up the loins of your mind. So pull your sleeves up, you know, get stuck in. There's nothing worse than being involved in, say, a working bee or on a, on a, on a site and seeing someone holding back, not wanting to get dirty. They don't roll their sleeves up. You can't do the dishes at home if you don't roll your sleeves up, I've found. Um, and you laugh, but I actually do them quite a bit. Uh, you can ask my wife afterwards. So rolling your sleeves up is important. It frees your arms up to work. But again, it's a modern understanding of this verse. I think this verse here, from Ephesians 6.14, which you'll know well. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. What's he talking about? That's Paul talking about the belt of truth, as we would describe it. And again, a similar use of this phrase. I think it comes back to this, that truth and our understanding of it needs to be ongoing. We need to be constantly going back to the Word, going back to the Bible, and preparing our minds for what is about to come. We don't know what's going to hit us today, tomorrow, next week. And many of us here are probably currently going through something which has a great deal of uncertainty attached to it. There are things that can happen that we never anticipated. And how do we deal with them? Well, I think Peter's suggesting here that if you're going to be ready for what comes at you, whether it's persecution or just things going wrong, you've got to be prepared in your mind through a study of the word, knowing the truth and being ready to live it out at a moment's notice. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the, uh, the Russian novelist who was a, uh, an opponent of communism, or at least a, um, a passive resistor, you could call him, 
He wrote, one word of truth outweighs the lies of the whole world. We underestimate just how powerful the word of God is. We underestimate how the truth can cause a riot. So, if we're going to go with, say, the New American Standard Version, prepare your minds for action, it means then to know the word, to know the truth, so that we can be ready to engage with what we face out there in the world. And this is the question I have for you. Have for you. Are we ready with the truth in reaching a hostile, broken, confused world, a world that is desperately in need of a saviour? Do you feel ready? That's only a question that you can answer, perhaps in, in prayer. We all feel guilty about the fact that you know, we don't do enough Bible reading, enough Bible study. We don't have your quiet time, your devotion in the morning. But it could be the difference between someone carrying on with their life and their problems or you being able to step in and say something God has put in your heart because you were prepared for the truth. And so I would suggest this. Bible study matters, even in the information age. It's not enough that you have a phone in your pocket that has a Bible app on it, which is great. I use mine all the time. But that doesn't mean that I'm prepared with what to say. It just means I have a way of quickly accessing the Bible. And yes, there are all kinds of of talks and all kinds of uh, things that, that, that people have shared both in terms of evangelism in terms of Bible teaching online but it's not a substitute for you as an individual believer knowing the truth and being able to share it someone won't be impressed if you simply say yeah I've, I've, I've heard stuff about that it's online they want to hear from you how it's made a difference in your life and how the truth has transformed you. And they may not even need to hear it. They want to see it in action. But if you don't dwell on the truth, if you don't spend time in the word, then that's not going to happen. Well, and to be fully sober, what does Peter mean by that? Fully sober. I think most of us are fully sober this morning, aren't we? <laughs> I hope so. Um, there are days when we may not be intoxicated, or hopefully most days we're not intoxicated, but um, we may not feel, feel fully sober. We may not feel alert, focused, with it, having our wits about us. To be fully sober is to be fully engaged in the experience, the world around you. You might recognise the guy on the right. It's Tom Hanks. The, uh, the guy on the left is um, an unsuspecting patron of this establishment who'd had a few too many to drink um, and missed out on, a, on a, uh, the full experience of, of having a photo with Tom Hanks. Um, Tom Hanks didn't, didn't hold back, though, as you can see. Yeah, apparently, this is actually a hoax. They, they, they staged it. But um, still, it would be a pretty cool, pretty cool photo to have, wouldn't it? Uh, but what are you missing out on? It may not have anything to do with alcohol, but are you fully sober? Are you fully alert and aware and engaged with the world around you? Do you have your wits about you? 
Are you on your toes, ready to leap into action, or are you sitting back? Are you at the starting blocks, waiting for that gun to go off, or are you still in the dressing room, changing room, getting ready? You've got to have your wits about you. You've got to be ready. You've got to see the need that is presented every day. Because someone else, you know, we can't expect someone else to be dealing with that. As believers, we're called to deal with it. It's as much your job, my job, as it is anyone else's to meet the needs of a broken world where we can. I like this idea here uh, in Luke 12, verse 35, where Jesus is speaking of the watchful servants. Remember that passage? He says, and again, a bit of deja vu here, let your loins be girded about, meaning be ready, just as Peter was saying in verse 13. But also keep your lights burning. And that's an idea, really, to do with alertness, to be sober, to be focused, to have your wits about you. Be vigilant. And yet, Peter could also remember a time when he didn't stay alert, when he wasn't sober, or at least wasn't awake. Matthew 26, as Jesus is facing arrest, he knows it's on, on its way. He knows a crowd, a mob are coming to get him. And he takes his closest friends and they go into the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is praying and so intently that he is bleeding or he's sweating blood. And throughout that time he's hoping that his closest friends are going to stay there with him and be present and be in the moment and be sober. But three times he, can't, he catches them asleep. He goes and he comes back and each time they are fast asleep and Peter's one of them. If Peter had done that to the Lord, imagine the sins of guilt afterwards. And how he would never have forgotten that moment. Understanding that to be sober, to be alert, is so crucial because otherwise we miss out on the most significant moments in our lives and the lives of others. Opportunities to help, to step in, to speak truth into a situation. And so the world is an intoxicating place because it's, there's consumerism, there's materialism. There are all kinds of distractions and things that keep us distracted. So we've got to keep our wits about us. This is another question for you. What consumes most of your energy and attention on a daily basis? Absolutely, there are going to be things that you've got to do. You've got to feed the kids. That's not an option. You've got to make sure that your bills are paid because being a freeloader isn't an option either. We don't have that permission as a Christian to simply, you know, coast along and ride on, ride on, uh, on, on the, the, the goodwill of others. But there are so many things that fill up our hours, our days, 
that are really quite irrelevant, that are really a waste of time. And they're very much about indulging the sense of satisfaction that we long for. So, this is the second idea, I think. Christ calls us to serve even when it hurts. Even when you're deprived of sleep. We have a seven-month-old, seven months yesterday, I think it was, and I know what it's like to go without sleep. I have sympathy for Peter in his situation there in the Garden of Gethsemane. But it isn't an option not to get up and tend to a baby when the baby's crying and hungry and needs changing. And it certainly isn't an option when we have a world that is broken and hurting and needy, requiring a saviour, for us just to carry on by and say, well, no, I've got a pretty important Netflix show I've got to watch tonight. I would hang out with you. Maybe next week. Of course, the problem will be maybe more severe by then. Or they'll have given up on you. Yes, we all need rest. We all need that space just to sort of chill out. But how much of our time really is about our own recuperation? And how much of it is really about self-indulgence? Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. For Peter, every new moment with Jesus was better than the last. He could say this with full conviction to these, many of these people in, in, Galatia, in, in the uh, region of Asia Minor who had never actually seen Jesus for themselves. Peter had. He was an eyewitness. He had walked with Jesus and gone through these experiences that the Gospels describe. Even if it had meant, you know, he'd fallen asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. He could say he'd been there. And you think back to when Peter first met Jesus, or at least the first time we know he encounters Jesus. He's called on the lake shore, on the, on the beach, to leave what he's doing and go and follow Jesus. That would have been a powerful moment. It clearly was powerful for Peter because he did what Jesus invited him to do. He left his livelihood behind, he left everything behind, his nets and his boat, and he went and he followed. But through the Gospels it just gets, you know, more and more intense. Every new sort of experience with Jesus is more profound. He, he, uh, he finds himself witnessing the feeding of 5,000. He finds himself walking on water with Jesus. He finds himself at an empty tomb, realizing that his saviour was his best friend all along. And even more than that, he then discovers that Jesus in spirit comes down at Pentecost to live in Peter. So looking ahead here in 1 Peter, you can understand why he's saying, guys, the best is still yet to come. There is even more that we have to look forward to. It just gets more and more intense in a good way. 
So, do you feel like that? Professing the Christian faith is increasingly unpopular and provocative in our society today. Do we feel like we have more to lose than we might gain? In being a Christian and an effective witness, in living out what you know to be real, to be true, surely we must feel that there is still more, still better to come. That when Jesus is revealed one day, when he comes back, that that will top even this experience now of having a personal relationship through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So this is my third idea. We, are, we have a living hope called Jesus. A living hope in that he lives in us. Even if you're a cowardly, worldly Christian, he's living in you. Peter could testify to that. Because he had been a cowardly, worldly kind of follower. And yet he came to realize after Pentecost that that made him eligible because he was a failure and he understood it and he accepted it and he admitted it. And only then could the Holy Spirit come to live in him. And that would be his success, admitting his own failure. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Peter's first instincts were to take charge, lash out, and lie unreservedly in denying Jesus three times in his greatest moment of need. Remember, Peter lashed out with a sword and cut off the, 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 the slave's ear as Jesus was being arrested. Jesus then goes and puts the ear back on. Peter wanted to say to Jesus, don't you know, talk about one day you're going to get you know, killed. Don't talk about that. That's just not true. You're a good man. People will eventually come around to what you have to say. Just, just be positive for once, Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. And for Peter to deny, deny his best friend, his Lord and Master, three times, that night as he was being tried what does that suggest? well that suggests that okay, Peter may not have been one of those real kind of skid row sinners one of those guys who you see on a you know, the early hours of, of Saturday morning lying in the gutter with needles sticking out of his arm or some, some person that is just sort of a, a byword for depravity but it made him no less evil in terms of his old life you see evil is anything in which God is absent but God is denied an opportunity to work in the life of a believer and so his first instincts will always be evil ones our first instincts without Christ will always be evil ones the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And that saying is so true. We think that we will achieve God's work without his instruction, without his direction. Sorry, it's not going to happen. And we're reminded of this throughout scripture. 
And Peter's saying, if you want to be children, members of this family, who are obedient, then understand, first of all, that you're children, and that your Heavenly Father has a better plan. A plan that is about your welfare and the welfare of others. And he will provide, as fathers are supposed to do, and at the end of it, he will wrap his arm around you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Do we recognise the intellectual traps that lead to serious moral error in our personal lives? These days, there are all kinds of ways of thinking that are designed to confuse or designed to uh, lull us into a sense of complacency about the world that we live in. This, this belief that somehow we are moving upwards, that history is on the incline, it's on, on the increase, or on, on the, you know, heading towards better days, improvement. It's just a lie. Just because computers get more complex doesn't mean that human beings are getting any better. But we believe that lie. We believe all kinds of ideas that the world has to sell us. And so our fallen nature in every sense is at war with God's purposes. Even if we don't think of ourselves as a fornicator, murderer or thief. If we aren't living in his will, then we are doing things that are evil. Even if people don't recognize it, even if we fail to recognize it, it's still evil when we live outside his will. Evil sounds like an extreme word, but when you leave God out of it, the consequences inevitably, one day, will look pretty evil. Verse 15, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Verse 16, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Why are we so afraid of the word holy? Holiness. It's, it's a daunting word. It's an intimidating word. The fact is, we've been sold a lie. Because it means simply to be set apart. To be dedicated, to be committed for the use, for the purposes of only one person, and that is God. You have a calling, you have a purpose, and it is to be shared with no one other than him. In dedicating yourself, in plunging in, in immersing yourself in God's call, and in the identity that you've received in Christ, you become holy. You are, unre- you are reserved for him only. You are set apart for him and no one else. But it starts with admitting our failures. And that is where we get it wrong with holiness. Because we assume that somehow you've got to work towards holiness. You've got to sort of discard those, those hang-ups, those problems, those sinful traits, and eventually someday you'll become holy. No, that is not the point. That is not the meaning of holiness. Holiness is in your fallen state, waking up in the morning, every morning, and simply saying, God, I am a complete failure. Please work in me. 
work out your will in me. And make it clear to me what my purpose is. And let nothing else come between us. Romans 12, verses 1 to 2, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, good therefore again, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So holiness to many implies the unattainable, something exhausting, something full of effort, someone who's self-righteous. Holier than thou, that's probably the most common use of the word holy or holier these days, isn't it? You ever hear the word being used otherwise? And yet it's signifying or it's meant to imply that this person is self-righteous. They think they're better than everyone else. How far from the truth could you get? Holiness is recognizing that without God, you're a complete failure, you're a complete waste of time. You need him, you need to be set apart for him in order to live out your purpose. So my last idea is this. If we plunge in, we find our purpose. That's why I suggested this idea of full immersion. You can't enjoy, you can't fully experience the grace of God unless you're ready to let go of the things you're clinging on to and you plunge in to a life that he has created for you specially and then you will know what it means to be holy not based on your works but based on his Here's my brother. I wanted you to see a photo of him without the mask on. He's a good looking guy, isn't he? Um, and if I'd had a photo of Andy Bray, I would have put him up there too. Because Andy Bray, I didn't know him well, but he was a man who understood how life could throw you a lot of curveballs. He was a man who understood what it was to accept frailty well before your time. He was a man who understood that nothing is ever predictable except for the love and the calling that Christ gives each and every one of us. That is predictable because when Christ promises something, he fulfills it. He always comes through. We simply need to trust him and plunge in. Andy Bray was a man who lived a life of holiness because he understood that without Christ he couldn't achieve anything. I'll pray and as the band comes up I want you to ask yourself if you maybe been living under this mistaken uh, assumption that holiness was about what you could do for God. 
Heavenly Father, <coughs> we don't know how to deal with so many situations, and yet something in us always attempts to try and solve the problem without including you. That fleshly life, Lord, the lustful self, is really in the end about self-destruction. And it has taken so long sometimes for us to realise that. It took a while for Peter to work it out too. But we thank you for his testimony, Lord. For the way in which he was able to admit his failures. And in doing so, could say that he was holy. An idea, a concept that was so alien to so many of the people he was writing to. And yet, we have this letter still because people clearly came to understand that he had a point. Lord, we thank you that being holy is about letting go of who we are, admitting our failure, and letting Christ work in and through us. Because we have a glorious future ahead, Lord. Pray in Jesus' name.